and welcome to Saga Thing, a podcast where we put the sagas of the Icelanders on trial. I'm John. And I'm Andy. In each episode, we pick a saga, provide a brief or briefish summary, and then we judge the actions of the characters and the quality of the saga at The Saga Thing. It's been a while, John. I guess it has been. We've been sort of dragging our feet a bit as the fall semester draws to a close. Ah, work. It's kind of a shame that we have to work for a living, isn't it? Well, yes. <laughs> but here we are now. Yes. Yeah, we didn't want to go away for the holidays without posting at least one more saga for our fans out there. And I think for us, too. Right. Consider it our non-denominational gift to you. Exactly. It's Maybe it's something you can listen to with your family as you gather around that non-denominational tree, bush, or candles. Candles? <laughs> or for you more solitary souls out there, I guess you can think of it as something to keep you company while you drink away the tears. <laughs> oh, God. That's very harsh, John. Sorry. Uh, let's move on. What are we doing today? Well, speaking of solitary souls, we've got an outlaw saga. In this episode, a tale of vengeance, outlawry, and love, unlike any other in Icelandic literature. Saga Thing presents the tragic story of the Sursuns, Gisli, and Thorkel. Can the two brothers put aside their differences and play nice, or will Thorkel lose his head as brother turns against brother? Follow Gisli into exile as he flees the stern hand of the law. Admire his bravery, his cleverness, and his profound devotion to his wife, Aud. How long will this battle-brave trickster avoid the grasp of the bounty hunters, Bork the Stout, Eolf, and Helgi the Spy? Will he evade capture at last? Will he destroy his enemies and restore his name? Will he and Aud live happily ever after as they so deserve? Find out this time in... Gisli's Saga! Now, this is one of the better sagas in our humble opinion, so we've decided to split this into two parts, like we did with Erbigis Saga. Now, we're not going to always do this, right? No, God, I hope not. Uh, but it's such a good story, and there's so much to say about it, John, we just couldn't cram it into one episode or mm. one part. We're also trying to keep these things around one hour, and this two-part division is really a good compromise. Fair enough. Yeah. So, for all this talk about breaking the episode into two parts, our listeners might be thinking that this is a pretty long saga. No, why don't we just break out our old Hrofenkel stick and see how long it really is? Well, Gisli Saga comes in at a respectable 2.19 Hrofenkel Sagas. Is that all? Yeah. Uh, it actually surprised me a little bit. There's there's so much happening in the saga. There's such a large number of memorable events, and there's so many details that gives saga scholars the vapors that I tend to think <laughs> of this saga as being weightier than it is. Well, it is a lean narrative. Not a lot goes to waste in this story, and as we'll see, the author is really a master of the intricacies of saga plotting. And of course, the saga is something of a critic's favorite. Scholars love this saga for the sophistication of its structure, but also for the depth of its characters. All right, so let's get this thing started with our first section. Norwegian Prelude Our story begins with a sort of foreshadowing narrative, set in Norway and featuring Gisli Sursen's ancestors. Gisli's grandfather, Thorkel Skarauki, and his wife, Isgerd, have three sons who live with them. Ari, Gisli, and Thorbjorn. Now, to be clear, we're talking about a different Gisli here. Uh, yeah, yeah, this is still a generation away from our main story. Uh, the youngest brother, Thorbjorn, is going to turn out to be Gisli Sursen's father. Ari, who's Thorbjorn's oldest brother, marries a woman named Ingebjorg, and she joins their household along with her slave, Cole. But a roaming berserker named Bjorn the Black demands that Ari either fight him or give up Ingebjorg to him. Ari girds his loins, prepares for his duel with Bjorn, fights, and dies without laying a finger on Bjorn. Not a great start for a family saga, is it? No. Um, well, 
Win or lose, Ingebjörg still prefers the Thorkelsons to a berserker. So when Gisli Thorkelson vows to kill Bjorn Black in revenge, she encourages him. Yeah, it's really some encouragement. She says that she always preferred Gisli to his brother and tells him to borrow her slave sword, Grasida, or Greyblade. The mm. sword supposedly offers victory to whomever wields it in battle. Now, Ingebjörg really doesn't want to be a berserker's wife. Well, and fortunately for her, the sword's as good as advertised, and Gisli succeeds in killing Bjorn. Sure, but he doesn't want to give back such a lucky sword. Uh, and so he and the slave Cole fight over it, and Cole does wound Gisli badly, but Gisli smashes Grasida over Cole's head, and he does it so forcefully that the blade is shattered, and both men end up dying of their wounds. Mm. Now, meanwhile, Gisli's father Thorkel has died as well, and so everything the family owns is inherited by the sole surviving brother, Thorbjorn. Right. Now, Thorbjorn, reasonably enough, wants nothing to do with Ingeborg, or something of a black widow of his family. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he marries a nearby landowner's daughter named Thora. Amazingly, no one comes along and kills him, and they manage to raise four children without incident. Well, not entirely without incident. Well, we'll get to that. These four children are central to the saga. The oldest child is the only daughter, Thordis. And then there are three brothers, Thorkel, Gisli, and Ari. He has three sons, and he names them for his father and two brothers who all died early? Well, he's honoring the dead or something. This, by the way, is the Gisli from here on out. All right, so we've got a lot to cover now that we've got Gisli on the table. So I'm going to try to get us through this next section a little bit more quickly. The youngest son, Ari, goes off to be fostered by their mother's brother, Sturkar, but the others stay at home. Now, there are two consecutive attempts by undesirable types to woo Thordis, but Gisli puts a stop to both of them, first by killing a man named Bard, who has allegedly already seduced his sister, and second by dueling a man named Skeggy the Dueler and chopping off Skeggy's leg. Now, you have to be impressed anytime someone beats a guy named the Dueler one-on-one. Sure, but the problem, though is that Bard is a friend of Gisli's brother, Thorkel, so there's now a little bit of tension between them. And the saga author tells us that, quote, there never was the same warmth between the brothers after this. That's actually a bit of an understatement. Thorkel's the one who encourages Skeggy the Dueler to fight Gisli for Thordis's hand. <laughs> That's a major understatement. Yeah. Uh, one of the great features of this saga is the complexity of the relationships among the siblings in this generation. Uh, for example, more than one scholar has read the ferocity of Gisli's defense of his sister's honor as a sign of sexual attraction. But the love-hate relationship between Gisli and his brother Thorkel is in many ways the centerpiece of the saga. Well, Thorkel's interference this time has serious consequences, because Skeggy Dueler's sons and a former suitor of Thordis's named Kolbjorn team up to kill Gisli's entire family. Now, one of the things to notice here, John, is Thordis has a lot of suitors. Yes, the clear indication is that Thordis is quite a catch, either uh, because of her looks or possibly because as the eldest sibling, there might be some hope of getting your hands on a family, land land ownership or something like that. Yeah, but part of the problem is that she seems to be sleeping around with the without the official approval of her family. Right. Uh, yeah, no, the, the indications are pretty clear that Bard, at least, uh, has already enjoyed Thordis' favors uh, before Gisli has a chance to kill him. Right. And Gisli is not too happy about all that. Anyway, the plan of Skeggy Dueler's sons and Colbjorn uh, uh, is pretty simple. They're going to set fire to Gisli's family's house and kill anybody who tries to get out. That's simple. Yeah, it's pretty simple and effective. A dozen people of the household are killed in that fire, but Gisli, Thorkel, and their father Thorbjorn are all able to use goatskin soaked in whey to beat back the flames long enough for the immediate family to escape through a broken wall. Now, let me reiterate there. They soak goatskins in vats of whey 
and then use those to beat back the flame to get out. Who has vats of whey lying around? Well, it's one of those fascinating sort of moments where you get a sense of what life on an Icelandic farmhouse in an Icelandic or not Icelandic at this point, really Norwegian farmhouse mm-hmm. must have been like uh, that. There are these vats of whey um, that you sort of get the sense this must form a much more uh, fundamental part of the diet uh, than we might have thought. John, I don't know if you know this, but you can use whey to speed up the fermenting process when uh, brewing alcohol. Is that true? Does it make for a higher alcohol or just a faster fermentation? It just speeds up the fermentation process. They do that in uh, in Russia because it's – that's where I learned it anyway. They It's so cold there that uh, usually you'd need to leave the stuff to ferment for a very long time. But if you dump whey in there, um, it uh, speeds it up a little bit. Right. So we encourage our listeners to try this with, for example, Budweiser and see if you can't make an actual beer out of it. Oh, Hello. Uh, <laughs> uh, we should also explain, by the way, that the uh, the word for way in Old Norse is sur. Uh, and because of this ingenious method of escape, Thorbjorn becomes known as Thorbjorn Sur, which is why his sons are known as the Sursons. So anyway, Gisli and Thorkel bond over their desire for revenge, and they go on a killing spree that takes out Kolbjorn's entire family, the Skegisons and Skeggy, the one-legged dueler. It's really quite a mess. Uh, their revenge is both thorough and bloodthirsty. There are a couple of dozen people who die at their hands, and by the time they're done, there's just no way the family can remain in Norway. So they have to clear out and move to Iceland. The Sursons in Iceland. Now, the family settles in Snaffelsnes in the west of Iceland. Now, for our regular listeners, this is the same area where Erbigis saga took place. It's also where Eric the Red settled after he was forced out of Norway for those killings that he liked to do. Actually, there are a lot of Norwegian multiple murders in the neighborhood. It's kind of a dangerous place. <laughs> yeah, there are. Um, and, of course, uh, there are a few homegrown Icelandic killers around as well. Uh, but be that as it may, uh, the Sursons waste no time getting to know their new neighbors. Uh, and this next bit of the saga is a flurry of marriages. So hang on to your hats for a second. Uh, you might want to take out a pen and paper and take some notes. Gisli befriends a local man named Vestin Vestinson, who's married with two sons. Gisli marries Vestin's sister, Aud. Thorkel, Gisli's brother, marries a local woman named Asgard. And finally, their sister Thordis marries the local chieftain, Thorgrim the Gothi. And Thorgrim and Thorkel become very close friends. Right, so let's review here. We've got four men. Thorkel and Gisli Sorsen are brothers. Their sisters married to Thorgrim the Gothi. And then we have Vestin Vestinson, who's Gisli's brother-in-law. Yeah, that about covers it. Okay. It's actually, it's not as complicated as a lot of sagas. Um, there are a number of other people who have important parts to play in the story. But the kernel of this saga really is this group of four men and their wives. The relationship among these four is actually quite interesting. And it's a chance to see how marriages and friendships can bolster kin group connections. Vestin is bonded to Gisli as his brother-in-law, but also as his friend and business partner, since the two co-own a trading ship. Thorkel, as Aud's brother-in-law, is also linked to Vestin, but a lot more distantly. Thorgrim, as the husband of Gisli and Thorkel's sister, is bound to them both as brothers-in-law, and is also Mm -hmm. linked to Thorkel in particular by a close friendship. Right, and of course, the tension in this group is twofold. One problem is that Vestin and Thorgrim are bonded to the Sorsen brothers, but not to each other. Right. And the other problem is that Gisli and Thorkel Sursen, who we know already aren't all that close despite their fraternal bond, are each closer to one brother-in-law than to the other. Yeah, I mean, at first all four are enjoying the effect of a parent unity, since together they're a pretty formidable force. But when a man known to have foresight is overheard saying that their alliance is going to be short-lived, 
they're forced into a public display of their mutual bond. Right, and this is one of those great unexplained pre-Christian details we sometimes get in the sagas. The four of them set up a very public blood brotherhood ritual involving passing under a turf arch and mingling their blood with dirt. Uh, but as they're about to swear the oath, Thorgrim adds a caveat. He will only consider himself bound to the Sursons and will not take on responsibility for Vestin as well. Well, he's got a reason to want to set limits. I mean, of the four, Thorgrim is the only chieftain. You remember we called him Thorgrim the Gothi earlier. Right. Now, as uh, as the Gothi, he's obviously going to be a strong support for anyone who can get it. And his concern is that any of the other three would run to him for help before anyone else in the group. Now, he's got an obligation to his brothers-in-law already, but he doesn't, as of this point, have any obligation to Vestin, and he's not interested in starting an obligation there. Yeah, and there's definitely no blood or, or formal kin relationship that he's got with Vestin. Right, but there's a problem here. Gisli, who already has a history of antagonizing his sister Thordis's boyfriends, won't tolerate a partial oath, and so he removes his own pledge. He antagonizes her boyfriends? Well, okay, killing them. Yeah, he's, <laughs> he, he kills her boyfriends. He's not very subtle. But in this case, right. But in this case, he settles for antagonizing. Okay. So now we've got two pairs of friends instead of a four-pack, and indeed the alliance does start to crumble. There's mm-hmm. still those kinship links among them. But one of the questions the saga poses for us is whether that's really enough. We shall see. Gisli and his siblings. Part one. Now, Gisli and Thorkel still share a farm as brothers, but each of them goes into business with his preferred brother-in-law. So Gisli with Vestin and Thorkel with Thorgrim. Both pairs are very successful, and the Sursons maintain at least a lukewarm closeness. Mm-hmm. Uh, a year later, they both return to their farm, where Gisli works hard all day, and Thorkel holds himself aloof from the day-to-day work of farming now that he's a wealthy man. It sounds a little bit like Hrothagel Freysgo, the sleeping late all the time. It's similar, isn't it? Um, there's a term used for the sort of man who lazes about by the fire where everyone else is working. Oh, yeah, you're thinking of the, uh, the coal biter. That's mm-hmm. a great term. Such a rich mixture of description and contempt in that name, isn't there? Isn't there? Uh, as a side note, um, early in their days at Oxford together, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis formed a group to read and discuss Scandinavian literature, and they called their group the Coal Biters. Yeah. In fact, didn't you at one point suggest calling this podcast the Coal Biters after them? Well, I suggested calling us the Coal Biters. Uh <laughs> Colbiter at one and Colbiter two. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny. Uh, I've been reading uh, Tolkien's biography lately, and he mm-hmm. is—he's very fond of his little working groups. Oh yes, yes. From a very young yeah, age, he liked... he's always getting involved with little groups of men. Oh yes, always these groups of intellectual men who he could sort of sit around and have deep conversations with while mumbling into his pipe. <laughs> anyway, Thorkel is a bit of a Colbiter, uh, so he's back at the farmhouse while the other men are out working. He overhears his wife Asgard and Gisli's wife Aud talking. Uh, Aud tells Asgard that she knows Asgard has a crush on her brother Vestin. Uh, in retaliation, Asgard reminds Aud that she was once involved with Thorgrim before the Sursons arrived in Haukadal. Oh, some controversy here. Uh-huh. Now, Aud's relationship with Thorgrim ended before she married Gisli, uh, and it's not clear whether Asgard ever acted on her feelings for Vestin or whether she merely admires him from afar. Yeah. But Thorkel's already heard enough about what's mm-hmm. going on here. He speaks an angry poem at this point, and that's probably one of the more famous bits of saga verse-making. It goes something like, Here a great wonder, here of broken peace, here of a great matter, here of a death, one man's or more. 
that that really pretty much encapsulates the sagas as a body of literature. <laughs> yeah, it does. That's actually the uh, the subtitle that I use on my syllabus when I teach the sagas. Nice. Uh, because it really does just kind of in a few lines tell you what almost every saga really is about in the end. Mm-hmm. And the, so the women hear Thorkel speaking his verse and know that they've started a lot of trouble. Their responses to this are typical of their personalities. Asgard tries to make Thorkel forget about it that night by use of her sexual wiles. Mm-hmm. Yes, I know. Um, kind of a saucy moment for the sagas, uh, in which she's twining her arms around his neck. Right. Uh, but Aud immediately apologizes to Gisli and tells him exactly what was said. Gisli responds by saying that fate will do as it must. But this is also one of those moments when we really see the difference between Gisli and Thorkel's attitudes toward their brotherly bond. Well, and also towards their wives, too. Mm. But from the start, anyways, we've seen that Thorkel regards his friendships as being as least as important as his relationships with Gisli and Thordis, if not more so. Right. Uh, Gisli, on the other hand, generally ranks family above other considerations. And we saw the result of this difference early on when Gisli killed Thorkel's friend Bard for his attentions to their sister. Uh, at that time, Gisli kind of assumed that Thorkel would understand and approve of his action. But Thorkel was so angry that he actively encouraged Skeggy Dooler to seek revenge against Gisli. So it's probably not all that surprising for Thorkel, learning that his wife and Vestin have a relationship, that it leads him to pull away from both Vestin and Gisli. That's probably why his next move is to dissolve his partnership with Gisli and move into Thorgrim's house. Mm. Yeah, Gisli doesn't see why there should be any problem between the brothers, though, and he tries to talk Thorkel out of this. Right, unsuccessfully. They do end up splitting their property, and Gisli keeps the farm. Now, the other event of note during this time is that Thorkel and Thorgrim Gothi visit a sorcerer or blacksmith named Thorgrim Neff. They bring with them a part of Thorkel's inheritance from his father. This is the shards of the sword Grasida. Right, this is the same sword, you'll remember, that the Sursen's uncle used in his duel with Bjorn Black. Uh, the one that shattered when their uncle then used it to kill its former owner. Mm-hmm. The three of them forge a new weapon from the pieces. It's a spearhead now. And the saga author tells us this, but nothing more, and then says, This matter must rest here a while. Ominous. Yes. Uh, now, the story at this point moves into the beginning of winter and the Winter Nights festivals. Gisli is, this is actually a very appropriate uh, saga for us to be doing right yeah, now. Yeah, it? it's a Christmas story. Yeah. So, so Merry Christmas to all and to all a good secret murder in the dark. Yes. Except uh, it's not Christmas because they aren't Christian yet, but whatever. Right, right, right. But Winter Nights. Mm-hmm. Uh, Gisli is throwing a big feast for the occasion. Uh, but he tries to send word that Vestin should not come. He's still worried about Thorkel and Thorgrim. He sends a message to Vestin with a slave who's given the other half of a coin that Gisli gave half of to Vestin previously. Really? So these half coins are just yeah. like uh, best friend lockets that uh, Vestin and Gisli have? Yeah. They've got a little bit of a bromance going, don't they? <laughs> well, be that as it may, uh, it doesn't work. Uh, Vestin doesn't get the message until he's almost at Gisli's house, uh, so he shows up anyway with both halves of his coin in his hand. Uh, Gisli has foreboding dreams uh, about this, but nothing happens at first. Uh, but then one night, there's a terrible storm that tears part of the roof off Gisli's house and threatens to destroy Gisli's haystacks. Gisli takes the other men to save the hay, but leaves Vestin behind at the house to keep him safe. And a slave named Thord, Thord the Coward, is the only other man in the house. The murder of Vestin Vestinson. It's not a good idea to leave a guy named the Coward in charge of security. That's a good tip. And sure enough, just before dawn, someone enters the house bearing the spear, Gracida. Now, whoever it is sneaks up to Vestin where he's lying half awake 
and he plunges the spear right into his chest. Vestin tries to get up and grab his attacker, but he slips to the ground and dies as the attacker escapes. His sister Aud raises the alarm, but it's not until Gizli returns that anyone removes the spear. And and that's probably because removing a weapon obligates one to seek vengeance as a symbolic Mm -hmm. act, right? Now, as soon as Gizli sees the spear blade forged from his uncle's sword, how does he... That's a funny thing, though, right? He sees yeah. it. How does he know that this metal happens to be the same one? Uh, it's got some of the same damascened blade. I don't know. <laughs> well, once it's melted, it changes all of that, doesn't right. it? Right. But anyways, <laughs> he somehow knows or thinks he knows who did this. And so he hides the blade so that no one else can see it. Right. So the question is, who does he think did it? That's a complicated question, and we're going to have to save it for later. For now, it's enough to know what the saga tells us explicitly, which is that Thorgrim and Thorkel present a united front when Vestin's murder is announced. Yeah, and they really play it straight-faced with Gisli. Uh, they mouth these platitudes about what a tragedy Vestin's death is, even though Gisli knows one of them killed him, and they know Gisli knows. Yeah, so they're kind of rubbing it in. A little bit, uh, especially when Thorgrim insists on helping dress Vestin's body. Uh, Gisli manages to control himself at the time, but when Vestin's mound has been raised and the Sursons are walking home together, they speak almost frankly with one mm-hmm. another. Thorkel asks that Gisli conduct himself in such a way that no one becomes suspicious of any of them. Uh, Gisli agrees, but he says, On one condition, if anything takes place in your life that pains you as badly as this pains me, you must promise to act in the same manner that you now ask of me. And Thorpolis accepts this. I noticed that when we read uh, quotes from the saga, we put on the silliest uh, deep voices. I know we need to put up, we need to come up with at least one or two, you know, other voices. Yeah, yeah um, we do. The problem is, you know, as two Americans um, attempting to do anything remotely resembling Icelandic accent would be a crashing failure and probably fairly insulting. Yeah, we don't want that. Uh, and so we're sort of limited to doing a range of American voices. Maybe we could do like a John Wayne on one there condition. <laughs> That's not even a good on John Wayne. On one condition, Pilgrim. <laughs> if anything. <laughs> yeah, that'll be good. That's Gisley's voice from now on. There you go. There you go. He's John Wayne. Uh, right. So uh, Gisley's speech can be understood two ways. Either Gisley is serving notice that he thinks Thorkel killed Vestin and is planning to kill Thorgrim as an eye for an eye. Or a brother-in-law for a brother-in-law. Sure. Uh, or else Gisli thinks Thorgrim did it and is warning his brother to allow him to take the necessary revenge, even though it will grieve Thorkel. Mm-hmm. Either way, Thorkel now has a warning that Gisli considers Thorgrim to be fair game and that Gisli trusts in their sibling bond to protect him from retaliation from Thorkel, just as he's avoiding implicating Thorkel in Vestin's death. Right. Now, the brothers have agreed to keep up appearances, and so they join the local games a few days later, just like they normally would. There's a ball game getting underway, and Gisli throws a hard tackle and knocks Thorgrim to the ground, bloodying his nose. Mm. Thorgrim's anger rises, and he looks toward Vestin's fresh grave and says, uh, what's the accent I should do here? <laughs> Let's see. Maybe Thorgrim needs to be... Maybe we need somebody who doesn't have a deep baritone voice. Spear stretched in his wound sorely. I cannot be sorry. There you go. Yeah, that's Beautiful. terrible. Gisli, <laughs> Gisli's infuriated, and so he throws the game ball at Thorgrim, knocking him flat on his face, and then he taunts him. Ball smashes his shoulders broadly. I cannot be sorry. That's so bad. <laughs> you have the worst John Wayne It, it really wasn't John Wayne. It was some... Oh, my God. I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> we'll just pretend that never <laughs> happened. <laughs> <laughs> the, the games end and the two men are not reconciled. And from here on out, the growing animosity between them is clear to everybody. 
Well, I mean, it wasn't that well hidden to start with. No. Uh, it's just getting worse now. The murder of Thorgrim Gothi. Now, moving along, Thorgrim can't resist antagonizing Gisli further. So during the following year's Winter Nights Festival, Thorgrim decides to test Gisli by asking Thorkel to claim some tapestries from Gisli's house that had once belonged to Vestin. Right. Now, of course, Thorkel refuses, probably because he remembers past situations where Gisli has gone from being provoked by Thorkel's friends to killing them fairly quickly. Yeah, but Thorgrim's determined, and so he orders his servant, Germund, to go and ask for the tapestries. Germund also refuses at first, but Thorgrim then slaps him across the face and orders him to do it. Germund agrees to go, but he swears an oath, saying, and here I have to do another stupid accent, But you may be certain that I will give a mare for this foal, and you will not be underpaid. Do I smell a notable witticism here? Not only that, but a horrible, horrible impression. Well, I, I thought it was a very dignified voice for a uh, slave, but... <laughs> yeah, why is he... Uh, well done. He, why is he going around serving? I don't, he sounds I don't like know that. why he's got some of a Charlton Heston thing going <laughs> yeah. on. He needs to... Yeah, that would be more like a... But you may be certain that I will give a mare for this foal, and you will not be underpaid. Is that Sean Connery's illegitimate American son? I don't know who that is, but anyway... <laughs> We got to take this one seriously as a as a good candidate for notable witticism. Yeah, th- well, Thorgrim certainly should. <laughs> yeah, he should, but don't spoil it. So Germund goes over to Gisli's house and asks for the tapestries, which he knows is a ridiculous thing to do. Right, but Gisli presumably sees the welt on Germund's face and sees a chance for revenge. Yeah, he speaks privately with Germund and asks him to unbolt the doors of Thorgrim's house that night. Now, Germund knows exactly what he's being asked to do. But his only question is whether Gisli's brother Thorka will be in any danger if he does as Gisli asks. Gisli responds, none at all. And Girman's reply, then it will be done, seals Thorgrim's fate. Now that night Gisli takes the spear Grasida from his trunk and puts on the dark cloak. And then he heads over to Thorgrim's house. Now when he reaches the farm, he finds that the doors have been left unlocked. Right, but it's not quite that easy. It's not entirely dark inside the house. There are three lamps burning while people sleep all around them. Gisli silently puts two of them out with rushes from the floor, but the third is further away from him. And then, as he watches, a hand reaches out of the shadows and snuffs out the third light. Is it Germund? Germund. Well, that's why you don't hit people. Right, it's, it's important to know. Right, so we'll pick it up here from the, the saga itself. This is Gisli walking further into the house and up to the bed closet where his sister Thordis and Thorgrim slept. The door was pulled to, and they were both in bed. He, Gisli, went to the bed, felt about inside, and touched his sister's breast. She was sleeping on the near side. And then Thordis said, Why is your hand so cold, Thorgrim? And thereby woke him up. Thorgrim replied, y- You want me to turn towards ye? Wait, what? <laughs> Wait a minute, your Thorgrim voice has changed substantially. He had the higher-pitched strike oh, yeah. voice. suddenly he's a welsh farmer yeah sorry about that thorgrim replied do you want me to turn towards you she thought it had been his hand that touched her gisli waited a little longer warming his hand inside his tunic while the couple fell asleep again and then he touched thorgrim lightly waking him thorgrim thought that thordis had roused him and he turned towards her Hmm, of course he did. Uh-huh. Gisli then pulled the bedclothes off of them. He plunged Grausida through Thorgrim so that it stuck fast in the bed. And then Thordis cried out, Everyone wake up! Thorgrim, my husband, has been killed! 
Um, notwithstanding your character assassination of Thordis, <laughs> it's a hell of a scene, uh, and it's certainly going to be worthy of consideration for best bloodshed. Absolutely, and I'm sorry to Thordis and her family. So, as soon as Gizli's done the deed, he runs out the same way that he came in. And since everybody was drinking at this big feast, it takes a while for them to get organized, and by the time they're all ready, he's far ahead of them. Mm-hmm. And of course they check Gizli's farm first, but Thorkel is at the head of the party. And when he walks into Gizli's home and sees Gizli's shoes on the floor covered in ice and grime, he kicks them subtly under the bed so that no one else sees them. Right. Now, at first, everyone is unsure whether Gizli's to blame, and things settle down. Uh, Thorgrim's brother Bork marries his widow, widow Thordis, who gives birth to a son. And the son is originally named Thorgrim Thorgrimson, but is later given the name by which he is better known, Snorri the Gothi, a.k.a. Oh. My Thing Man. He's quite a guy. He is. Uh, Bork, who's known as Bork the Stout, uh, also pays Thorgrim Neff, the blacksmith-slash-sorcerer, to place a curse on Thorgrim's murderer, whoever it may be, that no one living in Iceland would ever be able to help the murderer effectively. Now, in the next games, Gisli is annoyed by Bork's unsportsmanlike behavior, and he speaks what the Osaga author says is a verse which should not have been spoken. I saw the shoots reach up from the thawed ground on the Grimthor's mound. I slew that sort of gout. <laughs> His sister, Thordis, hears this verse and figures out what it means, which honestly isn't that hard if you listen to it. Well, no kidding. I mean, Gisli's even looking at Thorgrim's mouth when he says it. But she doesn't say anything at first. Uh, Bork and Gisli's level of hostility is ramped up anyway, and now they exchange killings. Bork has the mother of one of Gisli's friends stoned to death for using sorcery to kill a friend of his, and Gisli retaliates by capturing Thorgrim Neff, the blacksmith sorcerer, and stoning him to death. Lovely. You always so now gotta, it's really kicking off. Yeah. And there's nothing like a good stoning of a, of a witch. Absolutely. Gizli and his siblings. Part two. So things are getting really intense now. But things are about to get much, much worse. When Thordis tells her husband Bork and her brother Thorkel about Gizli's confession verse. Bork gets very angry, and though he also says that he can't trust the cold council of women, there's a famous phrase there, mm-hmm. it's clear that he's planning to move against Gisli. Right. I mean, Thord- Thordis is really one of the most fascinating figures in the saga. Um, her actions can be hard to understand, but she's clearly torn between her brother and her dead husband. And as we'll see later, she acts in ways that suggest she's struggling to make sense of those divided loyalties. Yeah. Our understanding of the relationship among the siblings is further complicated, when Thorkel then sneaks away to warn Gisli of what Thordis has done, Gisli's very disappointed by his sister's actions and further upset mm-hmm. when Thorkel promises only to try to warn him of any attack, saying, in essence, that he's too angry about the death of Thorgrim to do more. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty clear at this point that Thorkel regards himself as being equally obligated to his brother Gisli and to Thorgrim's memory. But as far as Gisli's concerned, this is tantamount to a betrayal. Yeah. Uh, and although he returns to Thorkel for help in the future... He never really expects anything good from his brother again. It really is an interesting relationship between them. And and Gizli uh, clearly is all about his family. Uh, mm-hmm. All he cares about is family and family honor and stuff like that. Whereas Thorkel is uh, playing around with a, a much broader kind of fictive kin group. Well, and we're seeing that this is uh, one of those moments where the prelude in Norway really kind of primes us for what's going to happen in the main part of the saga. Right? We've already That's seen right. these two guys fall out over the death of one of Thorkel's friends. 
Uh, and again, a, the death of a friend who uh, was involved with their sister. Yeah. Well, the, the relationships between these uh, these brothers and their sister and all of their kind of uh, their their group of friends or social relations, uh, it's really fascinating. And this is what makes this saga work. And it's something that the the author balances out very, very well. Mm-hmm. Now, now, Gisley knows that Bork's preparing a case against him. So he quickly sells his property to a neighbor so as to, to have money to take on the run. But Bork's not a patient man. And he and his friends ride to Gisley's place to try to kill him before the case can even be brought. Right. And here's that difficult relationship. Once again, Thorkel warns Gisley of the danger, but he won't help him in any real substantive way. Wouldn't you think that if you're going to ride to kill somebody, you'd maybe leave his brother behind? Yeah, yeah. It just Don't seems like poor Thorkel. planning. Well, Gisley finds out about this and he has to think very quickly. So he exchanges cloaks with his useless servant whose name is Thord the Coward. Right. Now, we already knew Thord was a bit of a fool. But it seems a little cruel to set him up like this. Really? If he's that dumb to get on back of the uh, the sleigh with uh, the wrong cloak on, it's probably merciful. That's cold, man. <laughs> well, it works anyways. When Bork's party arrives, an expert spear marksman named Thorgrim the Norwegian, he immediately kills Thord when they mistake him for his master. And Bork's nephews, Thorod and outlaw Stein, chase Gisli into some nearby woods. Mm-hmm. They throw a spear at Gisli, but he catches it and throws it back, killing Thorod. Thorgrim, the Norwegian, then throws a spear and catches Gisli in the leg, laming him. But he throws the spear back, killing Thorgrim, and Gisli then escapes, while the others hesitate to follow him into the woods. Now, you would think that that would be a great best bloodshed, but mm-hmm. we're not even going to consider that one because this saga has so much great stuff. No, I mean, there's just there's so much to choose from in this one. Uh, now, of course, because he's being hunted, Gisli has to leave the defense of his case in the hands of his wife Aud's uncles, the three Bjartmasons. Uh, but now this is when we start to see the power of that curse that Bork paid Thorgrim Neff to place on his brother's killer. The case goes terribly wrong, the Bjartmersons are reduced nearly to tears by their failures, and in the end, Gisli is outlawed for the killing of Thorgrim. Uh, but instead of leaving Iceland, Gisli chooses to live as an outlaw, moving around the countryside and trying to muster support to have his outlawry overturned. Right. But it's funny that he's trying to get it overturned, because he did kill a Gothi. That's absolutely a problem, uh... And, of course, that combined with the curse means that Gisli is just never going to be able to formulate any kind of meaningful support. So he's sort of doomed to this life of the outlaw, which brings us to our yeah. next section. Gisli, the outlaw. Now, though we don't see it in too many sagas, occasionally we find mm-hmm. outlaws who stay in Iceland for various reasons. Gisli is one of the most well-known of them. And this saga is generally thought of as one of the outlaw sagas. Yeah, but Gisli would rather not be an outlaw, obviously. Uh, he spends six years trying to find help, but that curse means that he can't put together any effective support. Meanwhile, Bork the Stout has hired his relative, Eyolf the Grey, to hunt Gisli down. Eyolf has a team of bounty hunters for hire, and his best weapon is a sharp-eyed tracker named Helgi the Spy. Helgi starts narrowing the search, and soon he and Eolf are convinced that Gisli's hiding somewhere around Girthsfjord, near his wife Aud's house. He is, by the way. So Eolf and Helgi bring their crew to the area and search, but Gisli slips by them. Uh, but knowing that they're closing in on him, Gisli seeks out his brother Thorkel once more, gets some money from him, and then seeks out an old woman named Thorgird. Thorgird's a really fascinating figure. She's this docile old grandmother who has an underground passage in her house for hiding outlaws. Right. 
It's sort of a hint about the extent of Icelandic sympathy for the noble outlaw figure. Yeah, well, there are outlaws who are just terrible people, like uh, if you remember Osback from Erbegi Saga, but mm-hmm. Gisli's another kind of outlaw. Uh, the Icelandic antipathy to authority uh, often manifested itself naturally in uh, championing the cause of some someone that the law had mistreated. Yeah, and Gisli's an interesting case because, of course, the law hasn't really mistreated No, him, not really. Said. He did kill by stealth. Right, and that's unacceptable by Icelandic legal standards. Mm-hmm. He is a murderer, not a killer. There's a big difference. Right. But the sympathy of nearly every audience for this saga is still with Gisli. Absolutely. I mean, that we find a woman in the countryside who's fitted out her house specifically to help hide outlaws does suggest that our author and his audience are very much in favor of flouting the law when the law doesn't gel with some moral code of the Icelander. In this case, probably something to do with family and family honor. Right. No, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Gisli is in some ways – he's almost a throwback. Uh, to a time when family and kin and so forth meant more than political loyalties. Right. Now, Gisli spends a winter with Thorgerd, but he can't stand to be away from Aud for long, and he returns to her in the spring. And this, I think this really is both the tragedy and the greatness of Gisli. He really, really loves his wife. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a sort of theme in this saga about the importance of good marriages. The author goes out of his way to underline the happy marriage of Gisli's parents, for example. Right. Uh, which contrasts with the deaths of Gisli's uncles due to drama connected to their romantic lives. Yeah, or even Gisli's uh, sister Thordis, who has kind of traumatic uh, marriages as things move forward. Right. Um, anyway, the main action of the saga is set off when Gisli's brother Thorkel's marriage is disrupted by his wife's infidelity. Right, and Gisli's marriage, on the other hand, is extremely secure and happy. Right, and that's partly but, because of the open communication that they have. You see when when the controversy right. was starting, right? Uh, Out is the one that went to Gisli and said, here's what happened. Here was the mm-hmm. relationship that I had. Whereas Asgard goes to Thorkel and just tries to seduce him rather than letting the truth come out. Right. Leaving it to fester. Exactly. You know, Thorkel doesn't forget about it even though he drops it at that moment. That's good advice for those uh, of you who are married out there. There you go. There you go. Honesty is the best policy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the other side of this is, of course, that Gisli's reliance on Aud as his link to normalcy is a kind of weakness that his enemies can exploit in their attempts to track him down. Right, and if you remember, Gisli's other link is his brother, Thorkel. Mm-hmm. And in the following year, Gisli and Thorkel are going to meet once again. Actually, this time, Thorkel tries to avoid seeing his brother at all. He won't come outside, he doesn't open the door. Right. But Gisli stands outside the house and throws a rune stick through the window, uh, and Thorkel eventually comes out. Yeah, once more, Thorkel offers to give Gisli money, but he won't involve himself beyond that. So Gisli takes a boat from Thorkel, but not before predicting that they will never see each other again, which I think Thorkel is quite happy about. Uh, so shortly after he leaves Thorkel's place, he intentionally wrecks the ship and leaves it adrift. Off trickery. Mm-hmm. Uh, when it's found, most people believe that Gisli's been drowned. Uh, but meanwhile, Gisli's holed up with his cousin, Ingjald, on Hergelsea Island offshore. Now, he doesn't know it, but this turns out to be a great move for him. It seems that Thorgrim Neff's curse only applies to the mainland of Iceland, and doesn't affect people living on the outer islands. So Gisli's able to hide for three more years this way. He spends summers with Aud and winters with Ingjald. Yeah, and it does work for quite a while, but eventually rumors start going around that Ingjald's got some awfully nice stuff. The, the, the <laughs> problem here is that Gisli's a much better craftsman than Ingjald is, and he's been doing repairs mm-hmm. around the farmstead to pay his keep. So Gisli's enemies catch wind of this, and Helgi the spy is sent out to investigate Ingjald's island. Now, one of the interesting things about this island is that Ingjald has a small family, and one of the uh, members of this family is his son, Helgi, uh, who's known as Ingjald's Fool. Right. Now, this is different than Helgi the Spy. Right. The description in the saga reads like this. 
Ingjald had a son named Helgi, as great and simple-minded an oaf as ever there was. He was tethered by the neck to a heavy stone with a hole in it and left outside to graze like an animal. He was known as Ingjald's fool and was a very large man, almost a troll. Right now, from the perspective of something like um, a disability reading of the text, this is it's interesting stuff. I mean, this is sort of it really gives us a window into the kind of treatment that a person uh, might expect if they had a mental disability, if they weren't able to function um, as a kind of independent adult yeah. in Iceland, a place that really doesn't have a lot of sympathy or resources to spend on people who can't function independently. Exactly. This is hardly Thor or Woodleg who uh, can provide for himself right. and can still fight. Right. Uh, Ingjald's fool, as he's called, uh, Helgi, is sort of left to, well, more or less um, uh, live or die uh, in the elements. Mm -hmm. Although we are told at one point that Ingjald's wife spends a lot of time looking after him. Right. So he isn't sort of, he isn't abandoned, but it's clear it's clear that he isn't, uh, he isn't well-treated and that the culture doesn't expect him to be well-treated. Yeah, certainly not an appreciated member of the household. Right. Anyway... Back to the, the action. Helgi the spy reports to Eolf that Gisli is indeed on the island, and Gisli's forced into yet another narrow escape. This time, he pretends to be Ingjald's mentally disabled son, and he sails right by Bork and Eolf's ship as it approaches. Um, he does that by acting a fool. He, he's wearing Helgi the fool's uh, garb, and he acts very ridiculous splashes in the water and acts as right. big an idiot as he can. And uh, the people enjoy laughing at him. Right. So it, right. Sort of exploiting people's sort of casual cruelty toward the mentally disabled. Exactly. So it, it's a clever ruse, and Gisli gets away, even if just barely, and the bounty hunters uh, are still hot on his heels. Right. And now there's a moment here that really cements Gisli's place as the, the noble outlaw, quote-unquote. Um, as he's leaving and still in danger of his life, he takes the time to strip the last two gold rings from his arm, and he uses them to buy the freedom of two of Ingjald's slaves who have helped him escape. What a guy. Indeed. Nobility aside, though, Gisli's situation is growing increasingly desperate. Bork's men pursue him into a ravine where outlaw Stein catches up to him. Gisli ambushes Stein and splits his head in half with a single sword blow. But Bork throws a spear that catches Gisli in the leg, and he drops his sword in exhaustion. Right. Now, Gisli at this point is confused and surrounded, but he finally has a bit of good luck. He runs into a local farmer named Ref, who's got a trickster streak in him. Gisli explains the situation, and Ref agrees to help. He hides Gisli in bed with his wife. Actually, he hides him under his wife. Ah, yeah, well, yes. In the, in the straw of the bedding, um, he puts him. Uh, Ref's wife, Alfdis, makes herself comfortable on top of Gisli. When eight of Bork's men arrive and demand to search Ref's house, he invites them in, and his wife proceeds to hurl so much abuse at them for disturbing her sleep that they perform only a perfunctory search and flee her tongue. She's really funny. Uh, well, I know. Uh, Gisli waits a while, quite comfortable under Ref's wife, and makes his way then back to his wife Oud's house, but not before thanking Ref and his wife profusely. Incidentally, we'll see Ref and his wife again in this podcast because there's an entire saga dedicated to Ref the Sly. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that one. It seems yeah. funny to me. Why don't the uh, Bork and his men just stake out Oud's house? That would be the smart thing to do. Right, well, they seem to come and go. I mean, they've got they've got limited resources themselves, yeah. and they keep sort of chasing off after one hot lead after another. Seems in the summertime, just hang out with Oud. You'll find him. Right. He's always there. At this point, the saga shifts briefly to the Spring Thorkosfjord Assembly, where Bork holds chieftaincy. It's worth pausing here briefly because this short episode contains a very worthy candidate for best bloodshed. He calls all... Oh, yes. Yeah, he calls his supporters together for a meeting there, and his friends begin arriving. Now, there are already two poorly dressed men at the assembly, 
and they are sitting with a, a self-important man named Halbjorn. They learn from him the name of each ship's captain as the ships come in. And when Gisli's brother Thorkel arrives, these two poorly dressed strangers approach him and begin complimenting him on his appearance. Then the elder of the two asks to see Thorkel's very fine sword, and Thorkel, bemused, hands it over. The stranger then draws the sword, and I think I remember Thorkel saying something like, I didn't tell you you could draw the sword. Right. (laughs) (laughs) But the uh, stranger ignores these protests and chops off Thorkel's head with a single blow. It's it's a neatly carried out assassination. It is audacious and it is bold. Yeah. It's a very Icelandic kind of assassination. Uh, and no one has any idea what to do next. Uh, the two strangers are running away. Others are panicking and rushing about. Most of the assembly has no idea what's just happened. In fact, they're so confused that Bork the Stout actually stops the two strangers to ask them what the commotion over by Thorkel's ship is about. And the younger stranger says, I think they're arguing about whether Vestin left only daughters behind him. Or whether he had a son. I love that line. It's a great it's line. It's really great. Now, will it win for notable witticism? Could be. Could be. I think it's got a good it chance. It definitely does. For now, we'll just note the strangers, of course, are Vestin's two sons, Berg and Helgi. And their killing of Thorkel Sursen is a deeply complicated affair. It is. But it, uh, it, it, but it is. <laughs> <laughs> well, they had to take revenge on someone for their father's death, and Thorgrim's already dead, so they need a piece of the pie. Well, maybe it's not that complicated. Okay. Uh, but the fact that they kill Thorkel suggests that not everyone is satisfied that Gisli's killing of Thorgrim tells the full story about what happened to Vesta. Well, there's tremendous pressure on close kin to demonstrate their thirst for vengeance in some public way. If you remember, Thorgrim's son Snorri Gothis mocked throughout his entire life for failing to take revenge, even though the killer is his uncle Gisli. Well, and there are some real parallels here between the Vestinson story and uh, Snorri's story. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Vestinsons escape in the chaos, and they make their way to their aunt's house. They – wait a minute. Their aunt is Gisli's wife out? Yeah. See? Parallels. Uh, so <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> they they show up at, their, at the door of their victim's brother to ask for help. Uh, fortunately for them, Aud answers the door instead, and she knows better than to introduce her nephews to Gisli under these circumstances. Well, I can see where that would be an awkward conversation. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> she instead sends them away to her own uncles, the Bjartmarsons, and gives them a head start before breaking the news to Gisli and asking him, as a favor to her, not to chase after them. Gisli's angry and upset, but of course there's a bit of conflict for here for him as well. Vestin was his close friend and his brother-in-law, and he's not eager to have to kill the man's sons for taking revenge. Gisli stays with Aud for a while, and at the same time, Helgi the spy is still tracking Gisli. Mm-hmm. He eventually scouts out Aud's house again. Duh. And this, Which, as you said, they really should just sort of stay there. Yeah, exactly. Just have a slave or somebody just hang out there in the woods. <laughs> anyway, this time he's got a partner named Havard, who'd recently arrived in Iceland. Now, Havard and Helgi soon find evidence of Gisli's camps, but Havard's not exactly what he seems. He's actually been sent to help Gisli, and he confuses mm. Helgi through the ruses that keep him from delivering accurate information to Eolf and Bork. Yeah, and Eolf is frustrated by Helgi's failures, so he brings all of his men to Aud's house, where we find, I think, yet another excellent candidate for best bloodshed. Mm-hmm. Eolf tries his best to convince Aud to turn Gisli in. He offers her a large purse full of money as reward for her cooperation. Aud, apparently exhausted by years of living a double life, asks to see the money. Yeah, it's a nice tense well, moment where you, you think really she's is. going to give her husband up. Well, and while Eolf is counting it out in a purse, 
Of course, uh, her servant girl runs out back where Gisli is actually hiding behind the house. Mm-hmm. She tearfully tells Gisli that Oud has betrayed him, but Gisli's calm and says that she's wrong. Oud will never betray him. Such a great love story, these two. It really is. Um, and he says, I will never have anything to fear from that woman. Yeah. Um, and he's right. Oud takes the purse from Eolf, confirms with him that she can do what she likes with it, and then swings it hard enough to smash Eolf's nose across his face. <laughs> it's just a great moment for Oud. It's a great <laughs> moment in the saga. I can't wait to see a it movie is. of this thing. <laughs> so uh, uh, when she does this, Eolf furiously orders his men to kill her right there on the scene for her insolence. But mm-hmm. Havard steps in and turns Eolf's men against him. And they kind of shame Eolf for the coward that yeah. he is. Now Eolf is forced to leave helplessly. And he's got blood pouring down his face. And his tail is between his legs yet again. Gisli's last stand. Now, we haven't talked about this up till now, but throughout the saga, Gisli's been having these bad dreams. Uh, they start after his outlawry, and uh, they sort of haunt him. Uh, he's Usually his dreams juxtapose these two women who alternately prophesize good and evil fates for him. Mm-hmm. Uh, over the next months after that confrontation uh, at the house, those dreams get worse and worse, until he becomes afraid to sleep or even to be alone in the dark. Yeah, it's actually something of a theme among Icelandic anti-heroes. Uh, Gretzer Asmunderson has similar fear of the dark. It's Oh, right, right. It adds this kind of psychological um, uh, horror to mm-hmm. the, the stories. Yep, and it is it's sort of this weak spot for... It seems like the outlaws have this weak spot where they, for one reason or another, are afraid of the dark. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, at the end of summer, uh, during an early frost, Gisli at this point is exhausted... And he moves to one of his hideouts to try and get some sleep there. Apparently he hopes that the dreams won't find him out there. Oud and the servant girl go with him, uh, but his dreams are worse than ever, and he sees a vision of blood-covered birds. Uh, the reason for his foreboding is pretty clear, or is soon clear. Eolf has returned to the house with 14 of his men, and has followed the tracks in the frost from there to the hideout. And this starts one of the great last stands in all of saga literature. Yeah. Um, I mean, among other things, Eolf's going to need all those men because Gisli mm-hmm. is not going gentle into that good night. <laughs> no, definitely not. So Gisli, Oud, and the serving girl all climb onto the top of a ridge. Gisli's fully armed, but the two women have only clubs. After Gisli and Eolf exchange taunts, Eolf sends Helgi the spy up the ridge first. Helgi mm-hmm. sneers at Eolf for his cowardice, but he does lead the charge. Deservedly so, by the way. <laughs> right. He rushes at Gisli, but Gisli cuts him in half with a single axe blow. Meanwhile, Eolf is going to try to sneak up the back way, but Oud smashes her club down on his sword arm, injuring him and knocking his sword from his hand. She's really pretty impressive, isn't she? Yeah, she's quite a lady. Uh, Gisli even takes a moment at this point to admire her work, uh, but he's soon busy as more men attack. Uh, several men fall to him, uh, but his axe breaks in the fighting, so that he's now using a sword. Uh, Gisli eventually scrambles onto a crag for better defense, but the women are eventually overpowered, and dragged away from the fight. And the remaining men now charge at Gisli in a two-sided rush, but Gisli fights furiously. He's badly injured, but he scores hits on every man attacking him. Uh, now we'll read from the saga because it's such a, a wonderfully written yes. piece. Now Eolf and his kinsmen saw that their names and their honor were at stake, and they attacked harder than ever, thrusting at him with their spears until his guts spilled out. Mm. Gisli gathered them up together in his shirt and bound them underneath with the cord. Talk about best bloodshed, John. I mean, I feel like we should have probably put a, a, a caveat on the start of this podcast. This will contain graphic descriptions of disembowelings. Right. So he's gathered his guts up underneath uh, with a cord, 
And then he told Eolf and his kinsmen to hold off for a while. <laughs> the end you want will come, he said. And then he spoke a verse. Goddess of golden rain, who gives me great joy, may boldly hear report of her friend's brave stand. I greet the sword's honed edge that bites into my flesh, knowing that this courage was given me by my father. This was Gisli's last verse. And soon as he spoke it, he jumped off the crag and drove his sword into the head of Eolf's kinsman Thord and split him down to the waist. <laughs> in Jeez. doing so, Gisli fell down on top of him and breathed his last. It's a hell of a way to go out. It really is. Uh, and more impressively, he continues to rack up a body count for quite a while after he dies. Yeah. Uh, the surviving attackers are all badly hurt. Uh, another one dies on the way back down the, ro- the hill. Mm-hmm. Yet another dies the next day. And then one more dies a year later uh, in bed from his wounds. Yeah, so by my count going through that whole thing, Gisli fatally wounded about nine men before he died. Yeah, and we'll get to that in our Judgment episode, uh, because I came up with the same number, but the saga disagrees with our count. Strange stuff. Uh-huh. Afterward, Eolf visits Bork the Stout and Thordis, who are now married, to announce Gisli's death. If you remember, we saw this once before from the opposite viewpoint. Little Snorri Gothi was on the floor... And Bork comes in to announce Eolf's killing of, right. of Gisli. So Thordis is furious about her brother's death, and she attacks and injures Eolf with his own sword at the dinner table. I, I feel obligated to point out, though, that Thordis is the one who originally told Bork that Gisli was Thorgrim's murderer. Yeah, I don't quite understand her motivations here. She's she's a very uh, complex woman. Absolutely. Um, but there is one more loose end to tie up. Um, the final chapter of the saga returns to the Vestensons. Uh, remember, these are the two guys, uh, Vestens' two sons, Berg and Helgi, who murdered Thorkel uh, at the Thorskafjord assembly. Right, and if They've you're escaped... keeping a tally sheet of, of what vengeances were accomplished and which ones weren't, uh, there's still a blank spot. Right, just one. Yeah. Like the death of Thorkel has not been avenged. Uh, these two have escaped Iceland and made their way to Norway. When they land, they're met by a man dressed all in red who asks them their names. Berg, the older brother, names himself, and the man immediately pulls out a sword and cuts him down. The man in red is Ari Sursen, Gisli's <laughs> younger brother, who everyone's forgotten all about and who Including hasn't been mentioned me. in the saga since the second chapter. Yeah, he's coming out of nowhere, this guy. <laughs> it's fantastic. I've always, I've always thought this is one of the best endings to the sagas because it's totally unexpected. Yeah, um, I mean, you have to go back sort of, to the very beginning when we say that uh, Gisli and Thorkel have a brother named Ari. That's right. all the saga gives. Right. And here he shows up yet again. But of course, in doing so, he completes that story in which the Norway uh, prelude is telling the story of the full saga. Mm-hmm. Because now here he is as the youngest brother, the only survivor, who's now going to carry on the family name. So there you have it. One of saga literature's most exciting and compelling narratives. It helps that it's so straightforward. It really does. Gizli's a fascinating character and worthy <laughs> of a saga all his own. Now, we'll forego the usual concluding remarks, because this is only the end of part one. Right. And after the music fades out, and you enjoy the goofy little nugget at the end... I'm sorry, the... the nugget? Is that what we're calling Yes. It? Oh, I thought you knew that. Now that I do, I wish I didn't. <laughs> All right, then. Well, everyone, then, feel free. Just press stop now and listen to the second part of the episode. No need to wait for the nugget. John doesn't seem to like it. You know what? I'm going to say that for the holidays, we should just think a little bit more highbrow. Oh, that sounds good. What do you have in mind this time? Well, why don't you uh, play our closing music and we'll find out. Alrighty.
I challenge you, sir, to a riddle contest. Uh, sounds good. What do you got? A small miracle hangs near a man's thigh, full under folds. It is stiff, strong, bold, brassy, and pierced in front. When a young lord lifts his tunic over his knees, he wants to greet with the hard head of this hanging creature the hole it has long come to fill. <laughs> That's your idea of highbrow? Well, yes. <laughs> Well, I have an idea of what it is, uh, but I think I'll leave it to our listeners to figure out. Um, how about this one, John? All right. I have heard of something or other growing in its nook, swelling and rising, pushing up its covering. Upon that boneless thing, a cocky-minded young woman took a grip with her hands. With her apron, a lord's daughter covered the tumescent thing. I haven't got the slightest idea. All right, then. We'll see you next time. <laughs> Bye now. <laughs> 